0: Okay, everybody, strong show for you today. Melania Trump is dropping her own NFT platform. I kid you not, we are at a peak. It's a peak. I'm going to talk a little bit about our grift of the day, a little bit about Trump, a little bit about the Obamas. I think actually her NFT platform, I might be a contrarian here. It's kind of dope. And Reddit just filed to go public. I'm going to break down their metrics, revenue price to sales, revenue per employee, and what uh, is the genius of Reddit and how it got here and how just masterful. Alexis and Steve, uh, the co-founders are as co-founders, but also community builders. They really are savants at that, just total impresarios. Then uh, I'm going to interview my friend, Tony Hale. I invested in his first company, Chartbeat. His second company, Scroll. Scroll was bought by Twitter. Scroll is a big part of Twitter Blue. It's got a lot of ideas on micropayments for and subscriptions for news. Uh, We had a really open discourse about Twitter's product and what it's like to be a founder and go into a big company. And he was pretty honest. And we went a little double clicked on Twitter's roadmap and what they're doing over there. And he even talked a little bit about the unexpected CEO change. So he was super honest. Uh, and I really appreciate Twitter's comms and communication groups allowing their executives to come on this program and talk. I think it's like a really cool thing. We don't get that from the Facebooks of the world uh, or the Instagrams or even Susan Mojeki at YouTube. I've invited her many times. A lot of the big companies uh, are not sharing Uh, their executives to talk about product and the company and where they're going. Uh, But Twitter has made the decision to be uh, really open and talk to their users. So I do appreciate that. Stick with us. It's going to be a great show.
1: This Week in Startups is brought to you by Disruptive Advertising, the top digital marketing agency for startups and SMBs. Get $1,000 off your first month of service at disruptiveadvertising.com slash twist. Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code
0: TWIST. All right, everybody, it's time for Grift of the Day. Yes, it's a very grifty time right now. We have Nancy Pelosi on one side, uh, the greatest trader ever, putting up a strong defense uh, that she should be able to trade on all the amazing information she and other politicians get. That's absolutely deranged. But there's nothing better than presidential and presidential family grift. Those are the high order grifts because every country, every corporation loves, loves to get a picture of a former president of the United States, you know, in their lobby, by their logo next to their CEO, and you just put that up and you're instantly credible. Some of the least credible investors I've known, and founders for that matter, have a picture of themselves with. Clinton, Obama, Trump, Bush, everybody, in their offices, on their social media, uh, Instagram, whatever. And uh, it's just a classic great grift. Uh, if you are modestly wealthy, you can pay 25 to 50,000 dollars to get a picture with any president you want, and so you can collect all four presidents for 100 grand, less than half the price of a bored ape. Uh, you can put four pictures of four presidents on your wall. And then when you do sales or anybody comes, it's the greatest trick in the book. And um, a lot of those top of the funnel coach, mastermind, ebook, grifters use this technique and they talk about it. They'll hire John Travolta, they'll hire, you know, any any celebrity who just needs a quick 50K speaking gig to do those pictures and, and to sort of associate. And it has nothing to do with the content. It's just to get the picture. So they give them the 50K to get the picture and then boom, they're good. So uh, in our grift of the day... Trump is launching an NFT platform. I kid you not. Here's the announcement excited for this new venture, which combines my passion. I should do it in a Melania voice, right? Excited for this new venture, which combines my passion for art and commitment to helping our nation's children fulfill their own unique American dream to grift hard on web three. I read that last sentence. Uh, The former first lady tweeted, a document from the Office of Melania Trump stating the first NFT available for purchase, so this is going to be a series, will be called Melania's Vision, priced at one soul, which is $180 as of this morning. Uh R.I.P. to the 240 uh soul. Sorry to my besties. The NFT is watercolor art that quote embodies Mrs. Trump's cobalt blue eyes, providing the collector with an amulet, an amulet to inspire. Also includes an audio recording. Of Melania uh, Trump, and here it is: a message of hope from Melania Trump. My vision is look forward with inspiration, strength, and courage. My vision is look forward look and be forward inspired. Strength, My vision and courage is who? My vision is divorce Donald. Forward with inspiration and get Marla guys and settlement and turn it. Oh, it's just so brutal. Uh, so you can buy this. I think she's going to do it every day. Uh, I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I got to admit, like, I like. I don't want to be one of ten thousand apes, but kind of do want to own one of these. And I think she should cameo it. So it should be like, this is special inspiration to this week in startup's team. Be your best. Your boss is insufferable, but be best. This is legitimate art for me this is legitimate art melania is an icon uh i'm not a trump supporter, as you all know but i'm team melania man i think she is got like a kind of interesting sense of humor here about this uh and i like when she like bats away donald trump's hands or rolls her eyes at him like she is a queen and like these are going to become i predict huge like she could just do this every day like inspiration a day from melania trump this could become super viral this could be her moment and if she sells one of these a day for a couple of g's i mean she's going to be doing you know as good as perez hilton on cameo who i think was the top person on cameo for a while (laughs) trump stated through this new technological based platform we will provide children computer science skills including programming and software development to thrive in the age out of the foster community, okay. I guess she's going to do some. Uh, oh, I see a portion of the proceeds. I guess she's going to donate, or maybe this is part of the grift. I think the Trump kids got a bunch of money for cancer kids, and then put up like flagpoles at their uh, <laughs> at their golf courses. Like the Trump nonprofit foundation was actually um, shut down. In New York, to the best of my recollection, somebody fact check me on that if I'm wrong. I think this kind of feels like Warhol and like what he did with Edie Sedgwick and some of that. But speaking of politicians cashing in, obviously, Trump has got the $2 billion back that is worth more than like four or five times where BuzzFeed has worked. I mean, poor Jonah Peretti and the team over there, like they poured... You know, over a decade into building BuzzFeed, getting to $360 million in revenue, and they're worth five or 600 million, which with the 100 million in cash they have means the business is worth one times revenue or 1.4 times revenue. And then Trump starts a SPAC, does nothing, puts up the worst white paper I've ever seen, the worst pitch deck in the history of pitch decks, literally something that should be on SNL. I mean, and it's worth over 2 billion, and they've got hundreds of millions in cash. And they had a more successful IPO than BuzzFeed? What is happening in the world? This is peak NFT and peak SPAC. Both of these examples are examples of peaks. One of the ways to know you're at a peak is to look for the grift. So here's a lesson for everybody. Consider this a micro lesson for you. Uh, shout out Scott Adams on his micro lessons. Here's a micro lesson. When people who have nothing to do with the technology then go all in, to secure the bag, and there's no there there, kind of a peaky moment. We saw it with ICOs, right? Paris Hilton and the Kardashians, everybody's ICOing, ICO this, ICO that, and then you saw some of them get fines, Uh, some celebrities got fines, and then the ICO thing went away, and whoever bought ICOs was left holding the bag, I think in large part. Correct me if I'm wrong, there were thousands of these ICOs, and uh, I think none of them were money-making. Correct me if I'm wrong, is there a money-making one, Filecoin ICO maybe? I don't know. Uh, but I think almost universally, the ICOs were uh, became worth zero. Now when I say hey, listen, NFTs could become worth like close to zero 99% of the money spent could go to go away and there'd be 1% people say I'm crazy. But it's not exactly what happened with ICOs. And correct me if I'm wrong. 90x percent of the revenue is gone. It's a grift. They took the money they ran. NFTs likely the same thing 90% of the money spent on NFTs is gone forever. 10% may stick around 1% may stick around who knows. So be careful out there. All right, listen, have Apple's new privacy updates impacted your attribution for paid ads? I bet it has. Well, there's good news. The folks at Disruptive Advertising can help you. They manage over $250 million a year in advertising spend. That means they're experts. That means they get to see all these changes and they get to solve problems before anybody else has even uh, figured out those problems exist. They're trusted by hundreds of brands like Adobe and Scott's miracle Grow. So if your Google and Facebook ads are not scaling like they used to, got to reach out to disruptive, they're going to look to help you scale your spend profitably. And how are they going to do that by diversifying your ad strategy on less popular platforms. And listen, every platform takes like a year to master Well, they've mastered them all already. That's their job. It's all they do focus They're marketing consultants focus on end to end tracking across your CRM marketing automations and your e commerce platforms. So they're thinking holistically about your whole marketing stack. And what disruptive really focuses on is contribution margin, profitability and closed deals. They don't want to just spend your money and give you a high five. No, they're looking at your actual business metrics that matter. Contribution margin, your profitability, what deals you're closing with those leads. And they want to reach startups and mid-sized companies and help you grow. And obviously they work with the big companies already. So, how about this? How about I get you $1000 off your first month of service at disruptiveadvertising.com/twist. Disruptiveadvertising.com/twist. To get $1,000 off. It's a great crew over there. I met the founder. They really love the show. They love helping startups. So go ahead and give them a shot, right? And then report back to me. Uh, Tell me how you did. All right, let's get back to the program. Uh, This is a sign of the peak, but let's be honest. The Trumps pal in comparison in their grift, pal to previous presidents and families. According to the Financial Times, Penguin Random House paid $65 million the global rights to two books written by barack and michelle obama and according to cnn business the payout for their netflix deal was in the high eight figures i'm guessing they got stock i heard it was like yeah i heard this is like another 50 or something million dollar deal just as a point of complete complete randomness and it's incredible how these two things are absolutely not correlated They're, they're correlated but clearly not caused netflix socks went on a 40x wreck in the obama era going from 1.4 billion to 58 billion uh it's obviously at 260 billion today uh and obama did a huge deal with them these two things are obviously in no way related um and of course over that decade what was the number one issue for netflix anybody remember what the number one existential crisis for netflix was net neutrality net neutrality would they have to pay for all the bandwidth they were using on other people's servers. I wonder, wonder what the Obama administration's position on net neutrality was. i to look it up. I voted for Obama. Okay, so I'm just saying. Presidents and their families are the grifters of the griftiest class. You can go back to the Clintons doing crazy speaking gigs. But yeah, maybe double click on that and take a look for me. All right. In other incredible news, and uh, congratulations to the founders of Reddit, uh, they just confidentially filed to go public after 16 years. It's been over 16 years, hasn't it? And $1.3 billion in funding. The announcement came last night. Steve Huffman has been running the company, and uh, Alexis Ohanian was there for a little bit had a little bit of a disaster. They put Ellen Powell in charge for like a year or two and the thing just almost imploded uh, from what I read. Um, But they put it back in the hands of the founder which is always the best idea. The S1 is not available for us to review yet because this is a confidential filing. So you know they're filing but they don't put all the data in there yet. According to The Verge, the company has been considering the IPO for some time. We know that Uh, rumors have been out there. It's uh, Reddit is probably the 20th most traffic site in the world. According to Alexa and similar web and other places, here's an image of the chart uh, with companies near them. BK is the Russian Facebook, uh, but, you know, they're obviously in in a great uh, area. In August, Reddit raised a $700 million Series F at a $10 billion valuation, and uh, they're making hundreds of million in revenue. The round was led by Fidelity, uh, according to PitchBook, which, you know, public investors dipping down and doing those late stage ones, pretty normal. $100 in ad revenue for Q2 of 2021 so that's 400 million dollar run rate 52 million DAOs, and so if we were to compare that to the revenue of buzzfeed pretty similar buzzfeed worth 600 million uh this company probably going to go out and be worth 20 times that i would guess now why why would this be worth 20 times well buzzfeed hires a bunch of journalists to get their traffic and reddit hires zero so the community-driven network and community means lower costs, higher number of users. They have $52 million. I don't know what BuzzFeed has, to be honest, uh, but I think it's nowhere near that. And uh, they have over 100,000 active subreddits. Those are like groups by verticals. And that was the big win, I would say, in the history of Reddit. The two things they got right were subreddits and never changing the interface and just not being put under pressure. Kevin Rose put under a lot of pressure by venture capitalists to change the interface. Condi Nest had bought Reddit, so they didn't invest in it. (laughs) So as a function of that ridiculous sale of like $6, $10 million to Condé Nest, I think they sold for $6 million or $10 million to Condé Nest. It was like a fire sale. It was crazy. Uh, maybe it was more. Maybe it was 20 or 30 Anyway, Condé Nast got it for a, a fraction of a percentage of what it is worth today. And they apparently didn't really invest in it. So therefore, the interface didn't change. When the interface doesn't change, users can just use the product. eBay, Amazon, Craigslist come to mind. And when you don't change the interface, users can just keep using it. SEO can keep growing. And so over 100,000 actors say, yeah, Condé Nast paid, get this, this is what things were like, $10 million for Reddit in tw- 2006. I had sold WebLogs Inc. for $30 million, And it was just sort of the nature of the time period. It was very small acquisitions. Reddit was considered kind of a sideshow. I wouldn't say a joke. It was just considered like a silly message board. Um, but a silly message board, when... The community is truly cherished and valued. I think that's the genius of Alexis uh, Ohanian and uh, Steve. I think those two are product geniuses and community geniuses. Uh, I really do mean that sincerely. I'm not just saying that like they, they were able to really focus and understand their community. And then everything else worked out. Because if those conversations are baking constantly and people are submitting, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of stories a day, and some number of them get discussions under it, all that content is free, just like Chorus content is free, stock Overflow's content is free. And this is user generated content. U- UGC was all the rage in web 2.0. Um, and so, you know, Reddit is now worth a 1000 times what content has paid for it, They have 450 million in yearly ad revenue, uh, according to sources and 1400 employees, that means they're making $320,000 per employee. If you did that uh, stat with BuzzFeed, I'm going to almost guarantee it's much less, but I could be wrong. We'll see. The point is, generally speaking, that user-generated content means lower costs. I wonder what all these employees are working on. Uh, that's the crazy thing. And so giving a little credit for some growth on the $100 million a quarter run rate, let's just say it's 450 uh, At a $10 billion valuation, they're 22 times. If they're growing at 20% a year, seems reasonable to me. I bet you they're also under monetized, uh, which basically means they're probably not making as much per page view as BuzzFeed or, let's say, Jim Bankoff's Vox properties. Um, And so the media business is really hard. You have to deal with a bunch of journalists and content creators, which is brutal, because if you self-select to be a journalist or a content creator, you are, by definition, opinionated, by definition, a debater, great with words. In other words, you're a management nightmare writers are the most difficult people to manage in the world journalists you see this because what's the big existential crisis for all of those publications it's the unions and the unionization and the employees walking out and them making crazy demands yada 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 that's what Bankoff and ferretti and all those people are struggling through even the new york times is like wire cutters walking out everybody's walking out it's literally like Managing journalists, trust me, I did this, and now I have analysts that inside, and managing those folks, it is like managing like the members of the Dungeons and Dragons theater and debate club. Like imagine a hundred people who were in all three of those clubs. They played Dungeons and Dragons, they were in the theater club and in the debate club, and now you have to manage them. It's crazy. That's why media brands just have a hard time, and they uh, generally try to stay small, you know, a hundred person to five hundred person staff, and then Condé Nast did such a brilliant job. Okay, we'll give Graydon Carter Vanity Fair on one floor, and Anna Wintour gets Vogue on one floor. Different cultures, little micro ecosystems, hundred to five hundred people They have their own PNL. Because once you get to the New York Times scale or Vox's scale, now you're seeing what's happening. The unions are like, oh, we got to get the wire cutter people. We got to combine them with this group of people, the Curbed people, the New York Mag union, and you have. I think Vox has like seven unions inside of Vox. These businesses are challenged. Vox is actually pretty profitable, actually. Jim Bankoff knows what he's doing. And that's probably a smart plan because if you're not profitable, I think people are going to put you in a bucket like it'll never be profitable and it's just a bad business model. So a uh, smart move on Bankoff's part to focus on profitability. I think that's going to make Vox actually maybe live up to their valuation in the private markets and maybe why Peretti and BuzzFeed isn't. I think if BuzzFeed show they can be profitable, you know, have a 30%, 20, 30% margin, their fate will change. Um, There's really only the the hard part about community is being patient. That's the hard part about building community. It's just a slow burn. I call it like hot coals marketing. You know, uh, you have to just build up a base of like hot coals. And then when you put a log on a bunch of hot coals, it goes on fire. If you put a, three logs in a fire pit, throw some like money on top of it, lighter fluid, and you light it on fire, you're just going to get a charred group of three logs. So you have to be patient for the first five or ten years to just build a community that likes to see each other. And when they're not in the community, they're kind of bummed and they're like, "Oh, I miss my community. I got to go back and check." Which is how I am with Nick's Fan TV uh, or the this week in startups community. The other thing is like Slack and Discord. That's a little bit too fast uh, for most people in their passions. In other words if you go to a discord like you're not going to scroll up for the last 24 hours and look at that conversation and try to read it like it's a transcript or a stenographer did it you kind of prefer the lightness and the ease of using a algorithmically based subreddit right It's just kind of a brilliant model uh and so moderation is a slight problem people making bad reddits obviously there's a ton of porn reddits uh and there were a ton of hate reddits they got rid of all the hate i think they still have all the adult content which i think tumblr had adult content too Twitter's got a lot of adult content. These companies have done a really good job of turning that off by default and then having the people who are making the adult content flag it. So if you're not flagging it, they'll flag it for you, I think, is what happens. And so a lot of these are offshore. So those 1,400 employees, I wouldn't be surprised if 500 of them are in the Philippines and Manila getting paid uh, one to $3 an hour US, which is a great salary over there. Translates really well to a middle class income from what I understand. And they're just trained, you know, like this is porn. If it's porn, just label it porn. And so all that will come out, maybe it's, you know, 20 or 30% adult content, I'm sorry, I should probably use that word uh, on some of these sites, uh, Twitter, etc. But you don't see it. Uh, It's kind of hidden. And uh, they may, they probably can't monetize it either. So it's kind of like a growth hack. But so those are the the only issues. Uh, Reddit, great, great community, great, great site. Congratulations to Alexis Ohanian, Steve Huffman, and the entire team both have been on the pod a couple times. Uh, both great entrepreneurs, a lot of respect for both of them in their careers. And uh, let's go on to my interview with scroll founder, former CEO of Chartbeat, and now one of the great product people at Twitter, Tony. If you want to make the jump in 2022 and start your own online business or blog, well, Squarespace is the answer. And I encourage you to be an entrepreneur to chart your own path. And Squarespace is the foundation of you taking that journey. It's the first step to put out your idea in the world and you a company of one that is put in under an hour will look as good as companies that have a million or 100,000 employees. It's the truth. Squarespace is the answer for making beautiful websites that are highly functional. With built in marketing tools and analytics, you don't just get publishing content. Obviously, that's where they started publishing beautiful content on beautiful templates, but you get to promote your business, announce events or projects. And you can sell products and services. Now they have beautiful templates. I want to just make sure that's clear world-class designers they pay them make beautiful templates and they have a ton of them plus they added that powerful e-commerce functionality years ago so you can sell 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 and everything's optimized for mobile you got built-in seo so you don't have to hire some consultant rips you off and then disappears plus you get free and secure hosting you don't have to worry about getting hacked and then hiring a sysadmin all that wasted money it's all abstracted into one simple low price at my favorite website builder Squarespace I've been using it for a decade free and secure hosting plus at 24 seven award winning customer support they know if you're building a business and yeah, you know, listen, you got a question. If they answer your questions, you're going to stick with their platform over the other ones. That's why they've invested so much in their customer support. Go to squarespace.com slash twist. Please just start your free trial. When you're ready to launch use the offer code twist T W I S T, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And that's how easy it is. You can get your domain name over there too. So go ahead and go to squarespace.com slash twist. They are amongst the longest running supporters of this week in startups, which means you, my loyal audience, should support them. Anybody in your family, any of your friends, any of your projects at work, just go use squarespace.com slash twist. Okay, great job, team. All right, everybody, welcome back to this week in startups. In his second appearance on the program, Tony Hale is back. He was on, I kid you not, episode 77 of this podcast in September of 2010. When I had just started my angel investing journey as a scout for Sequoia Capital. And one of those investments I made was in a little company called Chartbeat. How did I wind up investing in Chartbeat? Well, my friend John Borthwick was running his own little startup studio called BetaWorks. And he said, Come see these three or four projects. And he had like three or four projects going on. One of them was Chartbeat, one of them was DevPost, a very cool site. And I said, Okay, I'll take those two as if I was shopping. He's like, Oh, that one's not available. This one is available. I said, Either I take both or I take none, because I knew that if he liked one and it wasn't available, then that was the winner. And he's like, "God, I'm never playing poker with you." Okay, so I got to be the first investor, at least theoretically, uh, after him in Chartbeat, which was done wonderfully and it was a great service. And uh, Tony uh, was the CEO of that company, and then he went on to do a company called Scroll uh, to take on the uh, mission that so many founders have absolutely gotten knocked out by uh and we'll talk to him about that today but he made it and now he is a senior director of product at twitter which bought scroll which i was an investor in as well welcome back to the program 11 years later tony howe
2: thank you it's very good to be here uh
0: so uh let's start with what was scroll uh how many years did you work on it and how close did you get to your mission
2: my god uh how close did i get to my mission is a terrifying question uh, so Scroll was quite simply uh, our attempt to see if we could build a better internet, which was when you were a Scroll member, when you visited any number of like several hundred sites, including the Atlantic, Vox, Verge, um, local sites like the Philadelphia Inquirer and so forth, when you got there, it didn't matter how you got there, when you got there, they would deliver you a clean, fast, ad-free experience, no trackers, no... G boxes full of clickbait. It was just the clean content that you wanted to see. And then we paid out from the subscription more money than they would have made from ads. So it was an attempt at a whole new business model for the internet where consumers got what they wanted and publishers and journalists still got to
0: pay rent. Does this fall under the 20-year journey of people trying to get micropayments back into online systems?
2: It's, it's probably a little bit closer to Spotify in some way in that we didn't want someone to be constantly like saying, yes, I will pay. Yes, I will pay. Yes, I will pay. Instead, we wanted it to be frictionless. So they would just go to the site and then some portion of their money. So in that case, a micropayment would go to the publisher. And one of the interesting things that we found was that it was remarkably easy to beat the ad economics with subscription mechanics. So we could charge five bucks a month, have a three buck fifty pool, and we could easily beat what the publisher would have made from advertising.
0: So let me reflect back to you what you said so I completely understand and so does the audience. A uh, $5 a month subscription, 350 dollars 70%, just like the App Store, goes to the publishers. If I was a user and I clicked on uh, 350 stories, they would each get a penny. A penny would be a $10 CPM, I guess, right? A thousand views at a penny would be a, something like that. Am I ballpark correct? And you're saying the economics oh, worked damn, out?
2: Yeah, yeah the, economic, the economics worked out. Um in general, our minimum was that we would beat them by forty percent. So, if you if you think about the math like this, from a kind of from a top of the market perspective, about kind of two hundred thirty four million consumers of news and media in the US, the top group of publishers, like all the big, large premium publishers together, make about seven billion dollars in digital ad revenue. That's including classifieds and everything else uh, over the course of a year. So that breaks down to an ARPU, an average revenue per user, of about two bucks fifty a person. So if you got all of those big publishers into in, then you'd have to beat at least 2 bucks 50 to, to make it worth their while. And we had a $3.50 pool.
0: So the math just works. Now, of course, people have been trying to do this. Micropayments were done one at a time. Hey, a penny a story, four cents a story, which is kind of what we're talking about here. They were making a couple of pennies per story that's clicked on. Um, but it creates cognitive load to make that decision every time you look at an article so what you did so brilliantly was said hey don't worry about making a decision in the moment is this article worth five cents or one cent just we'll 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 come up with an average some people might read a thousand stories and but there might be somebody else who reads but 10 and it it all comes out in the wash is that correct what you basically conceived of
2: yeah it's very similar to the The kind of discussions that Spotify had to have with the music industry back in the day, where they were saying, "Look, we have some people who spend a thousand dollars a year on albums, and you're going to charge them ten bucks a month to listen to everything." And the key was, if there's a bucket of people that's worth ten million dollars to you, can I deliver fifteen million dollars from that bucket? So yes, some people Uh will have more, some people have less, but the total yield is going to go up.
0: Now. Uh this didn't work previously. People had tried it in the 90s. They tried it in the 2000s. You must have studied all of that. What gave you the hutzpah, the audacity to come at this problem in, you know, let's call it the third decade of people trying for a quick history lesson. MiniTel, which was in France, was an online service that charged you by the minute. Therefore, if you were on a news story from Le Monde, you would be charged some percentage of your online time. The same thing happened on Prodigy and AOL in the early days, you were paying five, three to five bucks an hour, and they would give a percentage of that to whoever was running the chat room or content or video game experience. So what gave you the audacity to try this? And then what was the reaction when you went to investors? Mine was crazy, let's go, but I'm, I'm that kind of guy, but what was the reaction and what gave you that audacity?
2: Um. So- you're right, there's a ton of corpses in this particular graveyard. And that was both terrifying but also useful because we knew all the things that had gone wrong uh, in the past. To your point, there'd been like the attempts to create uh, to create the micropayments where there'd been that cognitive friction uh, where people just weren't going to do that kind of like, I'm going to say yes, two cents, yes, four cents. That wasn't going to work. When people had tried to do this as their own separate silo, when they tried to do it in an app, and they'd basically said to people, hey, you can, uh, you can have this experience, but now you have to change everything about how you discover content to use it. Like those kind of approaches had struggled because there wasn't a large installed base. Um, so there was a bunch of different challenges. Um, and one of the things that gave me the courage to do this was the fact that I had an English accent. And so I thought I'd be more persuasive to publishers <laughs> um, than uh, people in the past. And, and it was also one of those, one of the kind of big questions about how you approach this kind of problem, which is you've effectively got two sides. You've got consumers and your publishers and you're trying to bring them together in some kind of like quasi-marketplace. And which side to go with first is always a tricky question. And a lot of people in the past had tried to go by saying, like, I'm going to build up a user base around this, and then I'm going to go and do content deals. And in fact, Adblock Plus had tried to do something with Flatter, uh, which was their only kind of attempt to do this. And it, mm in each one of these situations that there was a lack of trust mm. because they'd started by like effectively taking money away from publishers yes. and from the people creating the content. Um, Hilarious. Yeah. So it was like, you've been screwing over for the last five years. And now you want to do a deal. No. Um, mm. So one of the decisions that we uh, started with was we were like, okay, we know pretty much everybody in publishing anyway, because I've been working with them for the last seven years as CEO of Chartbeat. We could test this idea with a bunch of people, and we knew we wanted to start in a kind of ethical, scalable way. So we started by doing the deals with the publishers and making sure the model worked. And that kind of gave people a, l- a little bit more confidence uh, mm-hmm. where, where previously people had not been able to get publishers to do these deals. We were the first to really get this kind of deal done.
0: And let's be honest, publishers over the last five to 10 years have been suffering. Um, they've been losing the ad race to google and facebook which have better products for advertisers who are trying to reach true scale now if you're trying to reach a niche audience sure of you know one of jim bankoff's vox publications might be better or you know a specific section of the new york times might reach your specific niche and you want to be associated with it but if you're trying to hit scale you know youtube google facebook instagram there are at scale platforms so they were willing over the last five years that you were running uh scroll they would be four or five years, they would be willing to, to take a shot right now, right? They're like, hey, if it works, it's all upside for us. There's no downside yeah. for them, right?
2: This was this was one of the things that um, was critical for us. It was making sure that we could make it a win-win from the beginning. And you're right, like the word on everyone's lips was revenue diversity because they could see what was mm-hmm. happening with the ad business. They could see like uh, reports coming in where it's like 85% of digital ad spend is going to two companies. They're like, we're not one of those two companies. We have to do something about this. Um, and so there was, a, there was a desire for revenue diversity. And the critical thing was also avoiding the notion of cannibalization. We effectively worked a little bit like programmatic advertising. You came to the site, and instead of there being an uh, auction between advertisers, we were just bidding the most for that person to deliver a particular experience. And instead of it being a Mercedes ad, it was a clean, beautiful page.
0: Yeah. I mean at the end of the day there is an increasing number of individuals i believe who are valuing their time and the cleanliness the the hygiene of the page they're on and i think one of the best examples of this is youtube i think they were calling it red i don't know what they call it today um but are you a member of youtube's red service and uh do you pay for it because i have to tell you it's the most life-changing experience for me as a youtube person it doubled my usage of YouTube because the ads were the most annoying thing. And now they're all gone. And I give them what 10 or 15 bucks a month. So worth it.
2: This is this is why I'm not a member of YouTube is uh, red is because if I was, I would also double my usage of YouTube. Uh, and right now that would get me in a tremendous amount of trouble with my family. Uh, so I like well, so thus far, but it's, it's it's that same thing. Yeah, which is like, people will pay a premium either for experience or access. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was like, okay, we can make the economics work around the experience in a way that could make the world a bit better and maybe we were naive uh to, to dream about these kind of things but we that was the dream it was always like can you can you make the internet the way it always should have been where payments and like my my web three friends will tell me about this all the time pay, payments have been the missing infrastructure of the web yeah so we were like a, an initial kind of like uh attempt at that
0: if you don't have business insurance you failed one of the first steps of being a great founder startups should look no further than in broker brokers technology saves you time and money prices are like up to 20 percent lower and they got better coverage than all these slow incumbents you can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes i kid you not and when you work with in broker instead of business insurance incumbents you're not dealing with large slow corporations the sign up takes days not weeks and the process is so transparent there's no opaque pricing, there's no negotiation. You just get it all done. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. I'm going to quickly explain to you one crucial type of startup insurance that a broker covers. It's called EO. You may have heard it or overheard it. It covers errors and omissions. That'll help you deal with scaling your business. And because any major customer you try to sign up is going to say, hey, can you show us your EO? part of the diligence process. So you want to get it now. It's not that expensive. These things are part of the process of growing up as a startup. And you know what? I find sometimes people wait until they get burned to put on their insurance. The insurance is not that expensive. You want to do it proactively, especially if you've raised money recently. That's the perfect time to deploy a little bit of capital into protecting the kingdom, protect your enterprise. So, to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups, go to broker.com/twist. And while you're there, you get 10% off. They're already amazing prices by using the offer code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. Inbroker, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R dot com slash twist. All right. Thanks for supporting the show, broker. Love you guys. Talk to me about paywalls. Um, what happened when you brought up the discussion of, hey, content behind the paywall being included in this model when you talked to the publisher?
2: So paywalls are the most important and also area for publishers and also the area where they get most terrified. Yeah. Um, and quite rightly so, like they've seen so many of their kind of like revenue, mo- uh, revenue models being taken away by platforms, often with kind of arbitrary decisions uh, at times about like, are these things that we've seen what happened with like Facebook and video with, I mean, we all remember Google and Panda and all, all of these things. So keeping that relationship uh, sacrosanct has been, has been critical and so one of the things that was super important for us was to show that we weren't kind of cannibalizing those uh, paywall subscriptions and that mm-hmm. we were finding a way to be able to deliver this experience in a way that didn't uh, stop them from s- subscribing. And actually people, because they were getting a better experience, started caring about the content more and started kind of converting more. And that was one of the things that we found, so that people who would, like, wouldn't subscribe to The Atlantic before suddenly were like, I go here because I know I'm going to get a clean experience and now I'm going to subscribe to the site. And I know that when I do... I'm going to continue to get this after experience on whatever content I can see.
0: And uh, you were uh, so successful in um, this run that you had as an independent company, Twitter, uh, which is uh, has launched a subscription service that is, I think, excellent. And it's 1.0. It's called Twitter Blue. It's only three dollars a month. It feels like it should be five to seven, fifty bucks a year. But I guess Twitter is uh, going for a lower price. Bought the company, and I think you're a key piece of the Twitter Blue experience. Correct.
2: Yeah so uh we were we were super lucky we'd been t- we've been talking to Twitter for a while they uh actually invested in our series A although that wasn't uh public um and so we'd been working with them for a while and they were like look we want to come in with uh a subscription service we want to try and build and like be the f- kind of the first kind of large platform to really kind of diversify seriously in the, in this way and we want to do it in a way that kind of like recognizes and supports the ecosystem like the the phrase that I've been hearing at Twitter a lot over the last six months that I've been there is like, how can we be a different kind of platform? Mm. Uh, and so they, they wanted to bring in uh, Scroll and we very, very swiftly uh, were able to kind of rebuild a bunch of it inside of Twitter and then launch it as part of Twitter Blue with ad-free articles. So um, a large portion of what uh, you, you give to Twitter for that subscription actually funds the journalism uh, that you read.
0: So now journalists who already are obsessed with Twitter, both as consumers, as a news source, as a place to talk to subjects, to find news stories. And that was just a critical uh, piece that Evan Williams uh, got right in Bistone and Jack in the early days was they just decided, hey, let's give journalists blue check marks, celebrities, et cetera, so people don't fake them. And then that really made uh, you know this a, a great place not just to promote yourself, but to actually do your job, right? So they're kind of embedded in this ecosystem. Now, if you can help them generate uh, revenue and get rid of ads and make it more sustainable. Oh, my Lord, that's so in Twitter's uh, wheelhouse. Uh, So is the service essentially just ported over now and all the publishers get to experience this again? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So we, there was a, there was a lot of work that went in and a lot of late nights that went into that porting over. And we we're also lucky enough that uh we we're able to kind of expand the team and add some more people on the partnership side as well and so we we're able to bring in sites like the Washington post and the l a times and there's a whole bunch of more uh, launching I wish I could say just now, but like oh, it was okay. a couple of weeks um uh around this who so we were able to kind of augment even what we build at scroll so and Twitter blue of course is not just uh ad free articles there's a bunch of amazing other features uh involved in it but like this is this is the one that's close to my baby that one and top articles which was uh, for the nozzle fans, uh, we brought that one back.
0: Ah, where where do you find that in the interface? I didn't see top articles. Um, so uh, in the interface.
2: So if you go to the left, uh, if you click on your profile picture uh, in uh-huh. the app, and you'll see top articles in the. Uh, oh yes, the I menu. did see
0: this. Yes, this should be. This is going to wind up in the main navigation, or maybe on the explore page. I think right. you just being So one, there.
2: So one yeah. thing you can do with this is. Mm-hmm. With Twitter Blue, you also have the ability to customize your kind of bottom of the app nav. And so I just oh, put right. it there directly in the center. Uh, ah. It's one of, so I, that's one of the things I love about it. Uh, Got and it. It's a, and, and that's amazing. The team, Kristen Tucker was the PM on that. A whole bunch of engineers uh, and designers worked really hard to kind of build this kind of like homage to Nuzzle in six months wow uh, and get it out.
0: customizing the net navigation is a feature i didn't know was part of twitter blue we were educating the audience so you have the you have six icons in your task bar down there right and you, you can pick which ones you want and so bookmarks can be there lists can be there and top articles can be there so only six items can be there i don't need to have spaces there or communities so i can turn off spaces and communities and replace it with top articles and lists, which I love. Oh my god, that's such a game changer for a Twitter addict.
2: I'm glad I, you like it.
0: I I think that like the next piece, really, I think is um, I think becoming a blue check mark should be what Twitter Blue is about. Is now that you know my name, you have my credit card. I can be verified as anybody, uh, and that would turn what is a cost center now into a paid center. So, is there any movement on that internally, or do people talking about that? I know you can't tip your cards too much, but
2: I think there's a there's a lot of interest in kind of like how to signal being a Twitter Blue subscriber and thinking about that kind of verification thing. I would say that one of the things that's always important for us in these in these conversations is thinking about kind of equity and what those signals mean for uh, other people when they, when they when they come. Like it's, in some ways, the verified checkmark has been this kind of like this proof of status, uh, or it's, yeah. it seen as a proof of proof of status and if you can just kind of like buy your way into that proof of status we don't want to see bad actors leveraging that or mm. or other other things so it's uh mm. I, identity and verification all these things i came in and i was like how about this idea and this idea and people were like yeah we've been thinking about this for six years and we have like these we have these challenges that you have to go away and solve before you can do it so it's it's definitely an area of interest but i think we always want to be cautious about Anything where the imprimatur of the platform uh, might denote something that's not necessarily there.
0: Yeah, and the the reader view is really spectacular. Maybe we can just play that video and you can talk over it for a minute. But uh, now, when you have a thread on your Twitter, if you press that button, as you can see here, if you're watching the YouTube video, it just makes it look nice and clean, right? I mean, uh, you take out the interface uh, and you just get to read it as if it was like a medium article or some well designed protocol had a nice design, just like a beautiful designed web page almost. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, this was actually the feature, um, that blew my mind. It was something that the team that I work on long form had been working on, um, uh, for a while before I got there and they, uh, and they shipped it, I think first in Australia and Canada in June. And it blew my mind because it completely changed my notion of a thread. I'd always been thinking about them as just like, it's a selection of tweets and so forth, but like to be able to have that kind of immersive reading experience but one where you could also still create the signals of engagement around particular components of it. It made me even start to think about articles in a different way. And Mm so I think one of the things that if you're thinking about kind of areas where we're trying to go with Twitter blue, it's certainly around uh, notions of kind of more control, Mm -hmm. more customization, but also really trying to think about that content experience across the board. So like what top articles does is it really kind of doubles down on that notion of time well spent. You can kind mm. of see it in a flash, like the most important things in your story with reader mode. Suddenly you can be just immersed in one voice. And that's the kind of critical thing for me. You're going from a timeline of a thousand voices to one voice. And when you're reading one voice, you just want to be able to focus. And so mm. that's all, a lot of these features are, are kind of focused right? around It's Like when you go from a thousand voices to one voice, how do we make that experience like the most Zen like possible?
0: Yeah. And you know, the, the mouse and the uh, revenue quarter by quarter, uh, Twitter doing quite nicely. Um, and I think the product velocity since Kayvon uh, took over uh, Big Core, who was the head of product, he was on episode 1225, um, it feels like uh, Twitter was very concerned, you and I as users, before you were there. We were like, they're very precious about the interface and doing experiments. And now it feels like something happened in the last year or two, and I think it's Kayvon, that there is an open-mindedness to experimentation here now, yeah?
2: So I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, it's, it's important not to underestimate just like it, during those kind of dark periods where it felt like Twitter wasn't doing much, just how much work was going behind the scenes to kind of put the infrastructure in a place ah. where we could now do this. There was a tremendous amount of work from people very kind of very thanklessly like rebuilding and modularizing infrastructure, and making it even possible to build one thing over here without having to touch every single other piece of the stack. So there was a tremendous amount of work there. Then also, yeah, I think there's been a willingness to kind of to to drive faster and explore an experiment and and also to kill experiments. Like one of the things that really kind of like made me feel very good about Twitter when I joined was we experimented with fleets, didn't get to where we wanted to. And so we killed it. Mm. And it was that's exactly the kind of product decision making that I want to see out of a company. It's like we're going to experiment. We're going to, like, go hard on the thing. If it doesn't work out, we're going to kill it. Try something else.
0: You know, th- I was literally about to bring that up, is that the fleets experiment was like, okay, people are just putting their tweets in fleets. It doesn't make any sense. And that space up there works so much better when you see spaces there. And you, you, you really started to see, once you guys got through the technical debt, which is a, a, a term of art for those people who are new to the startup space, you, know, you build something for a decade or two, you know platforms and paradigm shift and to move the entire you know it's like taking your house and moving it from you know one plumbing system or electrical system to a brand new one it's the house has to get ripped apart the house is a bit messy you can't work on other projects when you're ripping up the floors and putting you know heating under the floors but when you put the heating under the floors you put the solar in all of a sudden your house uses half as much electricity but you do have to pause for the cause yeah
2: yeah, that was exactly it. And it's been it's been fascinating to be on the inside now and to understand mm-hmm. and see all that because I was the same. I was the guy outside going like, what's happening with Twitter? And yeah. now I get it. Mm. Uh,
0: and so big CEO change. How has that been? Uh, and tell me about the new uh, honcho, the new head honcho, as it were.
2: It was all a bit of a surprise, uh, I think, to all of us. It happened on a day of rest, which became less of a day of rest. Uh, mm-hmm. We're like once a once a month throughout the um pandemic we've been taking a day off as a company just right like mental wow. health and yeah it's been a, it's actually been a really nice thoughtful thing uh for people to do just to be able to take a step back and so of course this was when the news broke uh about parag and so on uh,
0: the namaste day the, like let's uh, drop yeah. the biggest news story <laughs> that's what well, everybody's like, it's bread that's uh yeah, that's uh, super paradoxical. <laughs> so, um,
2: uh, so, 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 so that happened, and uh, but we were lucky because we had an all hands the next day, and for a lot of people, they got to meet Prague for the very first time. And Prague is like, he he bleeds Twitter. He's been there for ten years, and he's just this kind of wonderful, humble guy. And mm-hmm. I think like he he won a lot of fans on that day, and immediately, kind of like going in, making making decisions, and kind of really putting a stamp on the company. So I'm. It's very early days. I'm super excited to see uh see what he does.
0: I just love the idea that somebody who was was he uh the head of engineering uh the
2: previously? CTO.
0: Yeah. CTO, right. So, I think maybe that was his first title he was like a VP of engineering then CTO. What's really great about that is, you know, the the critique of, you know, Twitter in its early days was you know, maybe Ev and Jack were product guys. But the tech wasn't as strong as it needed to be. We just talked about technical debt getting built up. And obviously, like, it was so popular in the early days, they they had the fail well. They couldn't even keep the servers up and running because it was growing so fast. And uh, the velocity of data being shared was just a really big technical challenge. When you think about all those unique feeds on a global basis in all those languages across, and people expect it to just pop up immediately. So that's kind of like a really good sign that, you know, we're looking at this as a technological company. Uh, that needs to really have a product velocity that matches the opportunity and the opportunity is so great so i guess that the how do you make a decision that something is going to be in the paid product versus the free product maybe you walk us through in a big company when you say hey you know uh at the edit button right like i have the undo button now because i'm playing for twitter blue undo button game changing delightful you have to figure out how many seconds to do because Sometimes you want your tweet to go out immediately. Other times you would love a minute, but a minute means like you might have six or seven tweets backed up. It's a little bit of a weird experience. So I think I put it at 20 seconds or something. And now I reread the tweets and then I hit send if I feel, you know, so I'm almost, it's almost like having two send buttons, like a, like a review button and then a publish button. But in that example or other examples, what is the thought process as a team of give it to everybody? make the experience better for everybody or incentivize people to to join us on this twitter blue journey
2: yeah i think it's uh it's it's a fascinating question and like i totally hear you on the undo tweet thing I, for a lot of people it's about catching typos for me mm-hmm. it's very much a question of do you really want to tweet this level of snark um <laughs> or or yes. should you just be should you just be nice and it's kind of like good tony and evil tony on my shoulders trying to uh I want yeah, to see evil Tony's
0: drafts. <laughs> I no, want to see the drafts. No, or no. I went no. through my draft folder at one point and I was like, Ooh, it was dark
2: in here. I'm going to get that. That's going to get buried in my coffin with me. Uh, yeah. That's never, that's never coming out. I think like, so when I think about the, the kind of products that we we look for, obviously one, the, the group that we care about, uh, or the, we're focused on right now from a, from a blue perspective, is kind of super users of Twitter mm. and super users of Twitter. And not necessarily like everybody else. We do weird things.
0: Describe the super user. Actually, I think that's a good point. uh, Because a lot of people uh, will push you, hey, bill for the lowest common denominator. And then other people say, hey, you got to really understand who the tip of the spear here is. So when you think about that tip of the spear, what is the profile of a Twitter top 10% user? So what's
2: interesting is it kind of, there's obviously people who are heavy tweeters. um, But the thing that's fascinating to me is the people who are like heavy non-tweeters as well there are people who are obsessively using twitter who just don't tweet that often at all and but use it for a variety of reasons and, and you get this kind of weird kind of prosumer group as well it's like people who are like for journalists uh, we were talking about journalists earlier yeah twitter is their linkedin you know yeah. it's their professional network it's how they get seen it's their it, it's their work for other people this is
0: a it's their a watering of, hole all right it's like kind yeah. of a place to hang yeah
2: so, so it has a variety of different kind of user groups. And so, what, so one of the things that we try to think about when we're thinking about uh, features for Blue uh, and this is kind of how like uh, Sarah Bigpoor and uh, Smita Gupta who are the kind of like along with Avijit Mehta are the kind of real uh, heroes and leaders of Blue. They, they talk to me about like the kind of notion of niche features, features that are like not all of the several hundred million people who come to Twitter on a kind of daily basis are going uh, to care about say bookmark folders. Uh, You know, it's not necessarily something for everyone, but for a group of people, that is like the biggest damn deal they can imagine. And so when we think about a lot of these features, it's often about like, what is something that is super valuable to a particular niche, but doesn't really have an impact on the general population of the audience. So we think about those things. And then we also thought about, um, and for example, even top articles, yeah? Top articles is great if you're like you and me and we follow a whole bunch of people and we want some way to be able to kind of sort through the stream. If you follow 50 people, mm. it's not as good. Yeah. Um, and so there are those kind of factors that kind of feed into, uh, into feature choice. Um, and then there are the ones like ad-free articles, which would be great for everybody. But we made a very clear decision that we wanted to fund journalism. And so funding journalism, that money has to come in before it can go out.
0: All right, paywalls. This is the, this the holy grail. Uh, there's got to be someone who has a, you know, paywall business. Insider seems to be Bloomberg seems to be going for it. There's an Atlantic seems to be going for it. I, can I give you 10 bucks a month? Like I do with Apple news at some point to just not have to, for me, it's just even about logging in. I have a login to a lot of these. I just want it to be seamless and easy breezy. And so I'm more than willing to pay 10 bucks a month to just get, 100 articles, 10 cents an article, I would pay for, like, on a consumption basis, i pay a flat rate. Is is that going to work? Is that going to happen? Do you do it by, you know, just piecemeal? What's the strategy there?
2: I think there's a bunch of different things that we can do to make that experience better. The first one, which is, in some ways, the simplest one to to do, is if you're already a subscriber to a website, just make sure that you're logged in when you get there. There's nothing more frustrating than when you're subscribed. S- subscribe to say the washington post or the atlantic or wherever and you hit there and you're like logged out showing me the paywall i like i want to throw my phone across the room
0: that's technically the issue there technically correct me if I'm wrong is you're you're popping up like a mini browser and it doesn't have your previous credentials in it if you did log in yeah and the, so yeah
2: one of the one of the things that's been uh uh a kind of additional casualty of apple's kind of war against cookies in general uh, which has been kind of helpful for kind of privacy around advertising it's also made life a lot, lot harder for publishers. who just want to keep you logged in. Mm. And so one of the things uh, that we'd love to just like, we just want to kind of knock off these kind of user challenges or like start with the easiest things, and then kind of like work our way up. So one of the things is like, yes, can we kind of like make sure that whenever you come from Twitter, you're always logged into the sites that you're a subscriber to just solve that pain point straight away. Secondly, it's like, can we do things where it actually makes economic sense not to get rid of the paywall, but to move the paywall back? Mm. You know, there's like your top one or two sites that actually you probably should subscribe to and support directly. And that's great. There's a whole ton of other sites that you're never going to subscribe to after that, mm. uh, that you're only visiting like two or three times in a given month. And you're still getting frustrated by that
0: paywall. Ah, so that's clever.
2: Can we, right. yeah, can we, can we rem- like help those people? Um, by saying we're going to make the economics work and the, and the yield work for a publisher where they can still attract their super fans, but avoid kind of like uh, frustrating those. So, like, whatever we do, there's a whole bunch of different ways to, to attack this problem, and it's going to be piecemeal and staged, and all of the experiments are going to happen and fail. And all, I all like what you're fans. saying
0: because there is like the porous paywall where they give you two articles for free and then they upsell you. And yeah. then there's, hey, listen, I love this publication, the Wall Street Journal. I read three or four stories a day. Of course, I'm going to pay for it. And then there's like, okay, listen, I, I stumble upon an insider Bloomberg Atlantic article, Washington Post article once a week, once every two weeks, maybe more accurately. And I want to read a deep dive or something. I'm never going to subscribe to it. So they might as well get me as a tweener for some amount of money. I'm more than happy to pay five or 10 cents. Which is much more than they would get on a CPM basis, correct?
2: Yeah. So, you're like, that's and that's very much the kind of area that like we want to we want to think about. We want to we want to make sure that we're never kind of cannibalizing a publisher's own subscriber base. We want to make we like we. One of the things that you'll hear consistently at, and what drives the team is this notion that we want to help journalists like pay rent. Yeah, <laughs> like
0: so eat, great. You know, See, like, it's a little the anti-Zuck <laughs> <laughs> like the yeah, anti facebook
2: it's, uh, it's, it's again it's like how do we be a different kind of platform right. and and so we will always want to be thinking starting with that point but we think there's a whole ton of ways in which we can work with publishers to help them like build more of an audience relationship do it in a way that makes them more money and relieve some of the frustration that occurs when people are kind of like going across the web so we're going to explore a whole ton of that over 20 I have months. a
0: great suggestion for you as a publisher myself uh, you know and a former journalist you know one of the key sticking points is knowing who is coming to your site. So if the scroll asset, you know, Twitter blue, could tell the Atlantic, and I would be fine with this as a user as well. The at Jason handle is looking at this many Atlantic articles through his Twitter blue subscription, not which articles just they're, You know, I'm doing one to five, five to 10, and then they could upsell me. So you could give them hey, listen, here's a target for upsell. Jason, is what you know is hitting you you know he's, he's done his 25th article with twitter blue yeah you might want to upsell them this is a good target for you and they could just say target my top users um or at least be able to market to them in a in a sort of an audience as a group what do you think of that idea or do, yeah, is that already part of the product
2: i think there's i i think there's a bunch of stuff we want, we always want to be careful about kind of user privacy and making sure we have consent and that's a kind of starting kind of <laughs> grounding point I think there's a ton of ways in which uh, we could help either with like special discounted deals when we can see that you're mm. a particular fan of an, of an area. Perfect. One, one thing even, so one of the things that we do uh, within Twitter Blue is we show, you what the, we show you transparently where your money goes. So you'll, there's a chart in, in the Twitter Blue settings which says see your impact. And it shows like, okay, a dollar of your money is going to the Vox, is going to Vox and like 90, 90 cents is going to the Miami Herald and all of these kind of things. It shows where your money is going. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is not only is it kind of like a newly transparent way to do business in, in, in this area, but it also tells people just how much they love particular publishers. Mm. And we've heard people say like, you know what? I didn't realize that I read the Atlantic that often. Screw it. I'm going to subscribe. Uh, and so those, that's a great those way those to do kind, it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like trying to find those kind of like hooks and signals of like, how do we get you to a place where you're getting the experience that you want? And also supporting the journalists.
0: Or here's another way. You know, I'm part of Twitter Blue and you see that I've read, uh, you know, these stories on the Atlantic, but I don't follow the journalist who wrote it. You know, the journalist, you know, the byline that's very simple to put together on a technological basis. All they need to do is put in the metadata on the article, the Twitter handle of the writer next to it. And most people do put the Twitter handle somewhere, but what that would do is then you could upsell me, Hey, suggested users follow these atlantic journalists or atlantic journalists you don't follow but you've read the story have you thought about that kind of stuff because getting followers for reader for journalists is truly valuable to journalists journalists are getting paid salaries and book advances based on how many followers they have i kid you not
2: yeah i love that uh i, I think if we're not thinking about that we should be uh and i got of
0: ideas i'm more than willing oh, to give them Jason, to you for free
2: <laughs> I, I remember the first time we met in 2009 you immediately gave me like 20 different product ideas and told me correctly that I was charging way too little for my startup. And uh, everything you said then was right. And so I've always paid careful attention ever since. And like, I just think there's, there's so many different places we can take this once we think about like how to do these things together. Even for example, like, can you create subscriber-only spaces mm. or subscriber-only tweets and threads for people? Like there's a whole bunch of different subscri- things. We-
0: yeah, subscriber spaces and group clubs. I just got invited to a Knicks club and nah, those clubs or groups, whatever you're calling them, is going to be i think a big experience uh in the near future Um, i love it i'm not able to create one but i'm in one and i this next one i'm like you know what it's kind of like my dm groups but it's using the twitter format it's like there's a little overlap there in the product uh use case but it's pretty pretty darn cool and i think that's going to be a big one is these little sort of subreddits inside of twitter they're kind of like subreddits is how i think about them
2: they're, they're great communities, and hopefully, like most of them, will be less depressing than a next one. But it's uh, it's, it's been up and down for us. It's been up and down. <laughs> but I,
0: I consider it a developing year. Listen, Tony, congratulations on the sale. Um, it's been great to invest in you twice, and then uh, you know I really do appreciate that Twitter has been uh, embracing my podcast specifically to come on here and talk about it, and and you know let us as the community of Twitter, uh, you know participate in a dialogue of what we want the service to be because twitter is something very important to a lot of us in our lives and i think it has tremendous upside and i feel like twitter is run by a group of very good actors i know people have been getting on you guys about like oh these little rule changes and freedom of speech I, I am certain there is no one at twitter who wants to limit freedom of speech there you just have this crazy uh, responsibility that's never existed before, which is to get hundreds of millions of people to interact on a daily basis uh, who, you know, have all the empathy sucked out of them because they're on a device in a very charged time. I mean, it's, it's not an easy job to try to manage a community at scale, is it?
2: It's, uh, it's incredibly hard. We're dealing with new complexities around society that we've never had to deal with before. And I think that that is the uh, that's the challenge and why people rightly kind of hold us to account uh, on this side of things what I can say is to agree with you that like every single person that I've met in Twitter, their hearts are pure. Their intent is real. uh, Mm -hmm. And they want to try and be, uh, be better and make the world better. And we're like, Twitter isn't the largest platform. It's arguably the most important one. And we've got to treat it like that. That's
0: actually super accurate. Yeah. It's, it's might be 20% of the size of other platforms uh, or 30%, whatever it is, but it's the most influential clearly. And we have to be very thoughtful about it. And like, this idea that you're going to kick the president of the United States off just because you disagree with him, or because he triggers you, or you just, or or even if he's doing bad things, it's kind of hard to silence the president of the United States in the free world. And then also, if the person is actually inciting violence, I'm not going to make you comment on any of this, but I, I can speak my opinion here. I know that you know you have to be careful because whatever you say is could be reaggregated by somebody speaking of the news. But, you know, it's a very delicate decision. I happen to think Twitter did a good job. But if somebody's inciting violence, that's clearly against the rules. You can't get away with that. If somebody has an opinion you don't like, okay, grow up. You have to deal with that. That's part of life. And, and, and I, it's just not easy. I mean, and, and I think the Trump situation is such a wild card that it's almost like I. what I tell people is like, if you're thinking about how to design a social network and then you put Trump in, that's like the trolley car problem. You're aware of the trolley car problem, like where it's like the trolley can kill like the baby. Uh, being pushed by mom, or eight adults. Like, who should suffer more in this crazy situation? Like, that's Trump in your social network. <laughs> it's like, there's no winning here. There is person's and actors just chaotically tweeting all day long. There's no winning. Uh, listen, it's been great to talk to you. I will not make you comment on I uh, Just as your Thank friend, you very much. I will, I will advise you to not <laughs> comment on the Trump situation because you'll be... See me starting to sweat
2: profusely here right now.
0: No, I mean, <laughs> the problem is, like, I just got off an interview about Theranos with a journalist and they're just the framing of every question that gotcha sometimes. And like what I try to do on this podcast, I have empathy for you as somebody who's working on Twitter. I don't want you to comment on t- Trump, to be totally honest, like, because all that does is then somebody on the left, somebody on the right, somebody in between is just going to misconstrue and aggregate your tweet and say, look, this supports my vision of the world. The fact is, it's a hard job. You guys do the best you can and the service kicks ass, and we all love it, and you're adding more features, so thank you for that. And to the Twitter team, we just really appreciate all the experiments you're doing. Great job the last two years. A plus, spaces, scroll, blue. We got to talk about DMs. DMs are in a sad state. I already talked to Kayvon about this. I know somebody's in charge of DMs. If you can get them in a room, we need an off-site meeting. DMs got to be searchable. You got they. It's got to become a modern messaging platform. That's a big, big win. If you guys can get DMs well, correct.
2: Well, we just announced that we had just acquired uh, the Quill messaging team. What? I yes, didn't know I that. Think, well, I think it was last week we announced that. Um, and so I think I think praise the, Jesus. The DM team who's been, who've already been working really, really hard um, are now going to have even more people and resources um, yeah. to help uh, make it even better
0: feels like a technical debt problem like when i see that the search like searching 10 years worth of dms doesn't work i'm like this is like 10 year plus of dms it's gonna hard it's a hard search problem to solve like <laughs> across the giant corpus i understand there's a lot of technical debt there in all likelihood and it's going to be a lot of work before it uh, starts but they, they you do have pin conversations i don't know if you saw that in dms pin conversations because when you're a super router like me you you have like three or four important groups and they just i have to scroll 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 to try to find them and now boom i got them pinned Great job. I love that feature. All right. Listen, I'll talk to you soon, brother. Congratulations. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startup. Sign up for Twitter Blue. It's awesome.